Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined from Qatar by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by Paul Hayward, who's literally written the book on the England national team. This World Cup is now entering the knockout phase. That's where more games than ever are won in the mind. I've been speaking to leading sports psychologist Tom Young He's a big admirer of Gareth Southgate's people-driven approach. Now this might sound strange given what he's already achieved and with the last 16 game against Senegal to look forward to. But Paul, is it about time Southgate was given more credit? I think that point arrived several years ago, Mike. (laughs) Again, we're lurching, or some people are lurching between opinions on Gareth Southgate. In the first game, everybody was raving about this attacking verb that saw off Iran with a 6-2 win. In the USA game, everybody complained that the handbrake was back on and that Southgate's conservatism was killing England. And then in the second half of the Wales game, everybody was enthusing again about the, you know, the range of match-winning, game-changing players at his disposal. All the way through in group stages, he's, he's adopted a balanced approach, tried to make the best use of his resources and strategized the group stage. That's very much part of his thinking. But he does live in this environment where people jump between extreme verdicts. And I, I think he's probably used to it now. But, you know, that's the way it is. Mm. What's the, the view on the ground like, Johnny? You know, I noticed that Gareth's talking about a different mentality within his group than, say, you know, that he had in Russia, perhaps more belief. With all this going on, is one of Southgate's greatest assets his ability just to fade out the noise? I think so. I think creating a happy bubble for the England squad has been one of his his biggest achievements. And it gets underplayed sometimes because I think we're in a world where people evaluate coaches very much on on the tactical side of things, on that horrible word philosophy. And, and of course, that tastes are formed by the leading coaches of the age, like Guardiola, who's who's everything. But because of that, I think there's an undervaluing of the maybe the older skills, the softer skills, which would be, you know, creating cultures, groups of players who've got a common cause and a, and, and a focus, a purpose. And Gareth has been incredibly good at doing that. And you see it on the ground here, the thing that really struck me speaking to him in the aftermath of the USA game was how even he was, how reflective but positive he was, and how he was taking the opportunity to try and he he know he, you know as Paul outlined very well, Gareth's been in this job for a while now, and he knows the lurches of opinions, and he was very conscious after that USA game, knowing what was coming, knowing the backlash, to try and realign people and, and just make everyone feel. A little put a bit of perspective, more positive perspective on the performance. Now the contrast was after the Iran game, where when everyone was getting overexcited, he was trying to temper that excitement. And I, I think he very consciously tries to bring an evenness, not just to his own work, but to the players around him and, and maybe as far as he can to us as a media. It's not always going to work. There's always going to be those lurches from some some colleagues perhaps, but he does his bit to try and keep us 
on this kind of even keel with perspective. Mm. Yeah, we all know, don't we, chaps, that managers or head coaches are judged by the difficult decisions that they make. What do you think the key decisions are that Southgate has to make on Sunday for the Senegal game, Paul? You know, obviously, there's going to be a focus on whether he retains Foden or Ashford or and Rashford. Yeah, it's a very different game to the Wales one. We know that. I think the, the the problem he has, or the conundrum, I should say, he has, is that the changes he made against Wales were framed very cleverly as people being rested, but actually, by a remarkable coincidence, the players who hadn't played well in the previous game were left out. Saka, Sterling and Mount were below par in that game and didn't play against Wales. The players who came in performed extremely well, and so that it's that classic manager's problem of thinking, do I keep these guys who delivered for me in the team or do I go back to my original starting eleven? If it were me, I certainly wouldn't drop Rashford because of the confidence he's playing with and I certainly wouldn't drop Foden. I think I think I would go without Saka and Sterling and I would have Rashford and Foden still in there. Mm. When we think about Rashford, Johnny, we think about the power of, of redemption, don't we? Mm. Is his progress in Qatar, another example of, of Southgate's understated leadership? I think it is. I think if you if you look at the, the, the pictures and footage when England finished games, you'll see Gareth going over to Rashford a lot and trying to reinforce, you know, on that one-to-one personal level, his, his kind of trust in him. He's obviously put a lot of work into that personal relationship. And I think... We've got to be aware that Rashford hadn't played a single minute for England after missing that penalty in the Euros final. And sometimes when you've got a player that's been out of the picture for that long and you try and bring them back into a squad, there are difficulties. And I think it says a lot about Gareth's management that he's been able to bring him straight in. He's been able to get the right Marcus Rashford mentally and he's been able to integrate very happily into the, the squad. And that's another testament to his his management skills. And, you know, as, as Paul said, it's about picking players who are in that hot moment and nobody's in a better moment really for England, arguably Harry Maguire than, than Rashford, who in the last two games, even as a substitute when he came on in against Iran, as uh, you know, he, he has been that point of danger in all those matches. And I think he has, you have to keep riding that. You have to keep going with that in this next game against Senegal. Mm. Yeah, Johnny mentioned Harry Maguire there, Paul. It is marked how much better a player, perhaps how much more confident he is as a person playing for England rather than Manchester United. What's the rationale behind that, do you think? Well, cricketers are giving up red ball for white ball, so maybe Harry Maguire could give up uh, club <laughs> football for international football and get a central contract from the FA. That would be my answer to that, Mike, because... The difference between his performances for club and country are, are, are vast, you know. Usually, it used to be the other way around, didn't it? Club players underperform for the country. He's reversed that e- equation. He does seem comfortable in the England setup. He makes fewer mistakes. He plays with more authority and confidence. But, you know, it's for Eric Ten Hag, really, that his job now is when he gets him back to Manchester United to say to him, look, OK, that we have to close this gap. You have to play for Manchester United the way you play for England, and I need to help you find a way of achieving that. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking here of, of basketball, actually, Johnny, but the, the concept of an athlete known as a glue guy. In other words, there's that individual whose contribution or his value is greater than his contribution on the pitch or as in basketball on the court. I'm thinking of Jordan Henderson in that mm. type of category. And it's been very marked that he's almost, I don't know whether he's been asked to do this, but he, he, he is gravitating towards Jude Bellingham quite a lot, I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, the, the Scouse Twitter is alive with the <laughs> fact that both Hendo and Trent Alexander-Arnold seem to be spending a lot of time with Jude Bellingham at a time that Liverpool sort of cover his services. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't think that's the reason he's doing it. I think he is doing the, the, the team thing very much. And he's one of those, you know, he is a glue guy for England. He's got, I think his person, in, in a squad full of kind of nice blokes, he's got a different edge to his personality. He's a lovely bloke, Jordan, but he's, he's very competitive on the pitch, a very vocal. 
And that's something different to most of the England players. And I think it's very valuable. I wrote about this at the weekend, that there is a flow in this team in that it can settle into a kind of passive mode of playing sometimes where no matter what Gareth told them, they can fall into a difficult patch in the game. And I don't think there are many with those kind of personalities that will drag other players out of it. But Jordan Henderson does. He looks to affect people around him. And I love the thing he said when he was asked about, he did an interview to, to, to publicise his book. And he said, you know, I should have called it with or without me because Liverpool would have won all that stuff with or without me. And <laughs> I think that says everything about his team-oriented and self-deprecating nature. Yeah, well, uh, kudos to Ollie Holt, uh, our long-term colleague, for coming up with that, I suspect, but there we are. Uh, <laughs> let's just briefly wave goodbye to Wales, if we could, Paul. I found, actually, that the sight of Wales in retreat, as it were, quite touching, especially Gareth Bale. Is it time, do you think, for him to actually just fade away gracefully? Well, he, he, he played as if <laughs> that's the course he's on, uh, regardless of what he wants to do. So the decision could be made for him. He's very powerful in Welsh football, and I suppose any time the manager thought he could get even a spark out of him in a qualifying campaign, he'd probably take that gamble. But yeah, with Wales, I was I was really disappointed with them. They were They were living off the romance of having qualified for the first time in 64 years. But that didn't seem any use to them when the games actually started. And it was surprising to me that they couldn't even summon the kind of underdog spirit that you would expect from them. The, the, you know, there wasn't that tenacity and, and application and togetherness you would have expected. I can, I, I can see why they were outplayed by certain teams, because they're one of the lowest ranked teams in the tournament, whatever their FIFA ranking says. But they, they just didn't, they didn't turn up. And that was, a, that was a great surprise to me. Yeah, sure. Perhaps sometimes these things are in the mind. I first met Tom Young when he was working with the European Ryder Cup team. He operates across sports from rugby league to football. Now, with pressure ratcheting up at the World Cup, I thought it was time to catch up with him once more. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us. You know probably better than anyone that sport is largely played in the mind we've got the world cup now how do you prepare a footballer or a team or a management group for the ultimate exposure that the world cup provides that's a really good question that's a it's a big question as well i think the key thing is that it starts way before the world cup you know and that's on an individual level that's on a group level it's like if you're practicing your tactics or working on tactics, you don't wait until the eve of the World Cup to start preparing for it. So I think crucially, the best teams and the most kind of organized high performance environments will have been preparing for this over the last two years, four years, however you view that cycle and over the experience that they've gathered during that time period. So first of all, I think it starts ahead and it's about being proactive with this kind of stuff. It's not reacting, waiting for there to be a problem and then working on something in some kind of panicked way. So you could look at things like a collective. So high performance teams, you would always say they have an underpinning, a kind of grounding in, in trust. So to do that, they have to have a, a common purpose. They have to have a clear idea of what they stand for, what their beliefs are, how they're going to play as well, who they are as, as individuals. And I think that's really important. So you think about examples of teams coming together teams knowing that they can can back each other and look to that person next to them and they can you know they're going to perform in those moments or they're going to have each other's backs that starts way before that's about delivering that collective that identity that we build so if you think about teams i don't know think about some examples Gareth Southgate talked about connecting with the fans they've talked about belonging and a kind of sense of tribalism i think within the England camp and almost challenging some of the things that went before, some of the baggage they might have held before. So I think there's a collective team environment that you've got to start to build, and that's done really so far before the, the tournament would begin. And then management teams, again, they've got to know what they stand for. They've got to be authentic. They've got to be resilient as they're going through those tournaments. And again, if we're looking at England, you would argue over the last couple of tournaments, they've started to gather that experience, positive and negative, in terms of they've had a whole range of sporting experiences and emotions and outcomes that they've been able to deal with and come back from as well and then individuals I think the role of a psychologist there is it's about helping each individual probably prepares in their own way 
So it's not about taking a blanket approach. It's about understanding the personalities in the group, what they need, and being able to help them get to the point where they're in that optimal kind of zone in order to perform. And that might be little triggers. That might be having a word with them in camp. That might be helping them to identify unhelpful thoughts and things like that. It's not about ignoring emotion or ignoring thoughts. It's about tackling those head on and being willing to talk about them and in a proactive way, I would say. Mm. With management teams, you, know, you worked with Belgium and Roberto Martinez. In specific terms, like all coaches that I know, the best coaches are all self-educators anyway. Mm. What do they take from you in the way that, that they want to do their job? I think you're right. They're all self-educated. That's one of the – so I did a lot of research with, with head coaches as well. And I think one of the things they do – now, and you see that, I read something about Arteta learning from Eddie Jones recently and things like that. There seems to be this open and sharing of information from different sports. Maybe it's less threat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show off now, oh, Tom. On. That was on this podcast. Ah, right, yeah. okay. It was, my, it was my interview. There you go. So <laughs> that's obviously gone into my brain somewhere to, uh, to see that. But there's a whole host of that learning from different environments. And I think Gareth's done that with England by the sound of it in terms of having visitors into camp. So we, they definitely draw information from different environments, probably more than people in their own environments as well because of that, I suppose, a little bit more open and vulnerable in order to do that. I think the relationship with a psychologist and a, and a head coach is, can be very different depending on who you're working with. So those head coaches might have mentors, they might have people they turn to, they might have family members, because it can be quite a lonely existence, I would say, especially in tournaments. Like Even though you're around loads of people, you're often detached from it in a way because the pressure is on you as well. So I think sometimes it's just a sounding board I think that's the main thing. It's about spotting key messages that they may be giving and maybe slipping back into, you know, I talk about autopilot. We like to run on autopilot. Our brains are lazy. So we slip back into patterns of thinking or patterns of behavior that we've kind of carried with us throughout our, our lives. And sometimes that can be unhelpful. Sometimes we can go down an irrational way. Sometimes we can maybe try something, I suppose, with a manager. A good example would be almost thinking, oh, what do we need to do? It's the semi-final or it's the quarter-final. We need to do something to motivate the players or we need to change something. And actually the best thing to do in most occasions is to keep things as much the same as they can while knowing that it's a semi-final of a World Cup, to keep things as normal as possible. And sometimes our tendency or our desire is to go, come on, let's do something different. Let's do something exciting. Let's get a motivational speaker in. Let's do this, let's do that. And actually keeping it calm, keeping it steady in that environment is a real skill set as well. So it might be something like that that they were taught to a psychologist about. What's really important is I think the psychologist in those high-performance environments is just part of it. So I think Gareth has Ian Mitchell within England who's on the pitch in training sessions. It's part of every meeting, not some kind of strange thing that's off to the side that we go to when there's a problem. It's just part of what they do. And that's brilliant. For me, that would be amazing to work in because – you're just part of it. You've got, you're adding a psychological input, a psychological lens to the conversations, whether that's around tactics, training, messaging to players, what they're going to do in the evenings, all those kind of things. It's just a normal part. Whereas I've seen it before in, in sport and in football, probably in particular, where we want to do psychology, but we don't quite know how that fits into what we already do. And it ends up being a little bit of a, a silo maybe. Mm. You know, a lot of coaches, managers that I know talk about, well, they all talk about the noise. Mm. You know, the extraneous stuff that comes with elite sport and specifically football in this case. Mm. How important is it for a team to almost like be in the bubble, isolate themselves from the realities that are around them? Yeah, I think obviously around social media and things like that, it's very difficult to completely isolate it. But having that ability, especially when you approach the knockouts, I suppose, is to to go into that bubble when you're, performing so there's a bubble around that so what do i need to do what are my controllable actions what are the specific things i bring to this team so still being able to execute those in terms of, of a performance bubble and then probably the bubble of the environment which is maybe what you're you're referring to a little bit there michael as well mm. yeah. and i listened to alicia russo talk about the lionesses going through the euros and she was saying that they'd go in and the question was kind of like around did you know what was going on around the country and I said, well, we got a sense of it when we went to the games. But as soon as we left the games, they were back in the hotel, they were relaxing, they were having coffees. And crucially, the thing that stuck with me was there was no Sky Sports on. So she said they didn't have Sky Sports on. So it went almost like a real buzz and blur of intensity and chaos in the game. 
to then, right, we're away, we're back in our safe environment, we're having coffees, I think there was sunbathing, all this kind of stuff, but no Sky Sports, not hammering it home. So I think the ability to do that, it's not an easy thing to do, but I think there are certain things around the environment that you can do to, to lend itself to that. Because we know the players are going to be thinking about it. We know that the motivation is really high. The pressure is really high. The expectation is really high. That's not going to disappear. So we've got to make sure I think that environment feels safe, where you can be yourself, where you can be open, where you can talk to someone, where you can get high support, whilst also being in this high challenge environment as well. We've already seen in, in Qatar the non-football issues, if you want to put it like that, mm. the political elements to both FIFA and the organisation of this particular World Cup. How do you prepare a player for a much bigger role than just his sporting or footballing talent? You know, Harry Kane is almost obliged to be a a spokesman for certain causes or to make certain gestures. Gareth Southgate handles it really well. Mm. Is this just now a fact of modern life in, in elite sport that that players are dragged into situations that really they're not prepared for. They are, yeah, they are dragged into it. But I would argue, from my point of view, the work you do with someone around them as a human being, rather than them as a mm. superstar, centre-forward, penalty taker, captain, all that kind of stuff on the pitch... I suppose the role of captain comes into this, but is around them as an individual. What do they stand for? You know, we've seen Harry Kane in recent weeks release a mental health initiative about kind of his mindset and the challenges he's gone through. So you can see that this is someone who's interested in, wants to use his platform to to kind of give those messages and, and communicate with people on a, or maybe on a deeper level. So I think it's the work you do with those individuals to develop them to that point that they can they can cope with it. Of course, to then still be able to go and execute, to go back to those controllables, to make sure that they're they're performing. That's a real balancing act. But again, I would be keeping them informed, which is maybe something that's difficult to do when it's a kind of ever-moving beast, as we've seen so far. Keep them informed. Make sure that they're probably acting in accordance with the team's values and beliefs and their own personal values and beliefs as well. It's a never-ending battle. It's not something you can just, you know, give them a quick pep talk and they'll go and do. I think it's the work you do in preparation for that and the work that the player does and the kind of person they are mm. as well. Because mm. we do forget, don't we, Tom, that these are just ordinary guys, mm. really, with an extraordinary talent in a certain area. Yeah. You know, are we in danger of forgetting the humanity of international sport? I think, first of all, I think in, in my work, whether that's in, in football or golf or athletics, like I've... I've been fortunate to meet and, and work with some people who have performed at the highest level. And I think we do, like you said there, we, we kind of forget they are normal people and they do have worries. So if anyone's listening to this and thinking they're superhuman, they're not, they do superhuman things, but when it comes to limiting beliefs, things that hold them back, worries, concerns, it's all in there. They're just able to kind of maybe rationalize that to spot those unhelpful thoughts and be able to, to bring it back into a more of a performance way. So into a performance zone, I think, are we are we losing the humanity? I think sometimes, I think if you look at documentaries that have been out recently or the interviews you do with managers and technical directors, starting to understand the people behind the sport, I think people really engage with that because they, they understand, okay, what drives this person? What are the setbacks they've had? What are the successes they've had? What can I learn from these people? I think that's, that's really important that that kind of content is out there. That's what people engage with, realizing that these people are human beings. And I think we do connect with them. I think over the last couple of tournaments, we probably have connected with our teams more than, and I'm talking about England here and, and probably Wales as well, where we've connected with them. We can look at those players and, and kind of, we, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a kind of empathy and trust and vulnerability around it that we, we, I think we do engage with and we buy into. So I think the humanity side of, of our England team, I think is, is on the rise, I would say. Sure. You know, you work across sports. Mm. What have you picked up from other sports that, that you feel is particularly important? You know, I know, for instance, you, you, you do a lot of work with St. Helens mm. Rugby League. That's an environment which has always struck me as being really raw, but you know, almost elemental, really. Yeah, it, I mean, it's been a great experience working with those guys. So I've worked with them over the last two years. And all the things we look at around high performance, I would say they have. 
in terms of, and, and by that, I mean, they have got a, a purpose, a clear goal. They've got clear behavioral standards that they hold each other to importantly. You know, we talk about what are the standards, what are the standards that we, we walk past. So sometimes we do allow those standards to, to slip. They're willing to, you know, talk about stuff as in face challenges head on, not just ignore it and hope they go away. So actually, you know, what do we believe about things? What do we believe about our potential? What are other people saying about us? They've got good people. They're willing to always, you know, go again. They're willing to be open and honest. So whether that's how much I think of you or whether I think you've let us down, you know, they're willing to have those conversations. None of that is around things like facilities or shiny training grounds. I always use that example. And I hope they don't mind me saying the St. Helens training ground is not the the flashiest facility you're going to go to, but it's real, it's grounded, it's it's honest, and it's where hard work takes place, and it, and I would say it's high performance. Yes, they're very good at what they do as well, so that helps. But in terms of that, they've got the people, they've got the mindset, they've got the, the kind of purpose as well. So quite often we'll slip into seeing environmental things, like we've got a new piece of kit, or we've got these words on a wall or pictures on a wall, which is all great, but actually you have to have that fundamental kind of underpinning of, of those that trust and that purpose and everything we've talked about in order for those, you know, environmental tweaks to, to really carry any weight. Mm. You mentioned mindset there, mm. Tom, can you address maybe, you know, an aspiring athlete, footballer, whoever it might be listening to this of the athletes that you, you've seen and you've worked with who have the best mindset? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And also I think, the word, I think we talk about kind of high performance mindset. This gets thrown around a lot. And one thing I would say is that it's a bit of a cliche. Well, yes, that, that was what I was going to say. And like I've seen players with loads of different personalities and characters. So introverts, extroverts, impatient, patient, you know, mavericks versus someone who needs loads of instruction and conformity. I've seen a range of characters thrive in elite sport. So first of all, that kind of, myth of personality sometimes i think that needs that needs challenging especially around team sports and then the mindset for you for you to do your job or for me to do my job like if or if we were footballers as well maybe we wish we were those mindsets <laughs> might be different that's usually a start oh well, yeah exactly yeah. fail fail players but that mindset might be different like what zone do i need to be in in order to perform at my best so anyone listening i'd be saying what are you like at your best okay start to map that out what does that look like? What are the beliefs and the attitudes and the feelings that underpin that? And what's the thought processes that underpin that? And then flip it and go, what are we like when we're not at our best? Because we all have those days. Like these people that we're talking about in the World Cup all have those days. What are we like when we're having an off day? What does that look like and feel like? And, and what are our, what's our thought process around that? And start to build a bit of a framework for where you are and where you think you are at your, at your best and maybe on those, those off days as well. And then it's about finding ways to be in that positive state more often and being able to not be perfect because you're not going to be hundred percent all the time. But if we're at 50%, can we get to 60 or 65 and help our team even more? So, so I think dispelling the myth of personality is something you've either got or you haven't and being able to build that framework of what it looks like for you. Do I need to be calm? Do I need to be really up for it? Cause you do see players where they're so pumped up that they then can't perform. You know, they can't mm -hmm. execute their normal controllable actions that they would always go back to so it's don't think of it as something that is you know you've either got or you haven't or it's some kind of like magical golden nugget that we need it's something to work on it's something to proactively work on to build those skills around it which everyone can do regardless of whether you're a mm. football player or if you're working in, in business or in schools or whatever you know, I know, you know we talked about cliches just a couple of minutes ago. You know, one of the, one of the cliches I hate, to be honest, is oh, he writes his own scripts. But there are certain players that that applies to. You know, Gareth Bale being yeah. one. Is there anything in these guys, their psychological approach? Is it sort of well, you know, I'm born to do this, so therefore I am going to excel at it. What mm. you know, if you take a Bale or any other examples that you could give us? they basically shape occasions mm. by almost a force of nature. Yeah, yeah. I think there's probably a, you build that belief as well. So probably from a young age, like I impact big games, I can make the difference, you know, things like that. And then obviously you build that evidence mentally when you go out and do that in the Champions League final or in the, the World Cup or whatever it might be. You know, look at someone like Mbappe's probably done that a little bit as well. 
from when he was, was he 19 in, in the last World Cup. Mm. So I think you do build that expectation. We talk about kind of self-talk and, you know, becoming what, if you don't know where you want to go, then how are you going to get there? So building this belief and this expectation around yourself. And I think probably the other thing that the best players do on the, just a psychological level is, so our, our brains are designed to scan for threats. So we see things that can cause us danger, cause, cause us harm. And we do that in modern day as well. So we start to think, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? Oh, Brazil are really good, aren't they? You know, our brains work really fast. So we almost don't have time to stop ourselves doing that. So we're looking for threats. You'll see, I don't know, maybe in the past taking penalties, we'll rush them because we just want to avoid them. We want to get them done. So that's a threat mindset. Whereas what those guys have probably learned and built and probably maybe quite naturally into that opportunity mindset. So then they know they're in a, in a state where they've got an opportunity to do something. And it's not a case of having an absence of thought or an absence of emotion and just doing it. You know, I hear people say, oh, just trust yourself, just go for it. Quite often, they'll still have those kind of thoughts, but they're able to acknowledge them and, and rationalize them into that state of, of opportunity. So opportunity versus threat. You know, these guys that you mentioned, I'm sure that they have a sense of opportunity. They have a sense for the for the fairy tale, for the story that it's never, you know, it's never over. And I think that's a combination of belief, but also that ability to see the opportunity within an environment that is, if you think about professional football and knockout football, it's full of threats. So it's a threat environment, but being able to see those opportunities and manage yourself during that time. Hmm. What are the specific pressures of knockout football? You know, we're just about to enter that phase in in this World Cup. Hmm. And, you know, whenever one thinks about knockout football in a World Cup context, you always think about penalties, you know, Baggio and all that sort of stuff. Again, how can you prepare someone for that type of pressure? Mm. I think if you look at penalties, almost like a sport within itself, I guess, and something that we've obviously talked about a lot as a nation, and we've had a obviously mm. a lot of baggage and a lot of experience, what teams are doing now, and we've seen it in the Premier League as well, and you know, there's more attention paid to the psychology of penalties. So whether that's the individual in terms of their own preparation, their own routine. So you might see Harry Kane, you'll see him taking a big breath before he takes his penalty. Even against Iran in our first group game, you saw their player take a long time before he took that penalty kick. So we all have our own routines. Alan Shearer used to turn his back, which you wouldn't advise anyone else to do. But if you're Alan Shearer, you can kind of do what you want when it comes to penalties. So I think there's... There's been more focus on the mental side of building a routine and having something that you can anchor to and go back to under pressure. We've not been perfect to that, of course, and it doesn't take away from the fact that you're still going to miss at times. But there has been more of a focus on the psychology of penalties and the preparation of penalties in terms of the psychology of execution. And I think in the past, we've maybe been guilty of just going, oh, let's just see what happens. You know, let's just, we've got good players. Let's hope they, they get us through. You know, there's a really interesting piece of research, which I'm sure you've, you've probably seen where a Norwegian psychologist, Gia Jorde, he categorized every penalty taken in major tournaments. Mm. And we were top of all these lists and leagues that you didn't want to be topped by. You know, we'd, we'd react to the referee's whistle like it was a starting gun at hundred meters. We turn our backs the most, you know, Jamie Carrey once took a penalty before the ref blew his whistle. And had to retake it, you know, because he just and, and to, yeah. So to me, that's a case of the brain just get it get out of here. That's a threat state. So I think there's been more work done on that. I think from our perspective, in terms of England, we've won penalty shootouts now. We we got that off our back against Colombia four years ago, or whatever whatever it is now. So we've been able to do that. We've been able to see some evidence. And then I think it's an individual thing. You know, it is again that threat and opportunity that we come back to. But being able for, to players for to work on that. I've read this week that they've, maybe this was on your podcast as well, but they've been practicing <laughs> without keepers because the keepers can obviously subconsciously start to learn where they're going to go, the, their own teammate keepers. So they've been practicing without keepers and things like that. So starting just to incorporate psychology within within that practice has been a, a big part for the penalties. And then if you look at the knockout phases as well, I think one thing that jumped out for me was it doesn't always have to be perfect. You know, I think sometimes we can, you know, you might scrape through 1-0. It's about getting through, about building that momentum. We've seen in other sports where we might play our, our final in the semi-final. I'm thinking of the Rugby World Cup, maybe. That was that was kind of thrown at the rugby team against the All Blacks because they gave everything in, in that. So it's about building that momentum as well. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, in 2014, Germany, I think, scraped through in their first knockout phase. And there was an interview afterwards, and they were saying, well, that wasn't very good, was it? It was Mertesacker. And he said, whatever, we're in the last eight. That was his reply. 
And that shows that mindset. The media is attacking us, but actually we've got this bubble. We've, we've done our job. So it doesn't have to be perfect. If you, I'm sure you watched The Last Dance, right? So about, with the Chicago yeah. Bulls, and there's a clip in that. I can't remember what exactly what phase it is during the, the end of the season, the finals, but it's Reggie Miller. And he says, we, and they'd obviously got beaten by the Bulls. And he said, we were the better team. But championship experience and DNA rose to the top. He said, I'm convinced we were the better team. So it's not always the best team that goes through. Mm. As a final point, if I could, Tom, it's probably an unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> um, uh, if there is one player at this World Cup that you could work with, who would that be? That's a, that's a great question. I think two that that spring to mind. So the first one, which which might be a bit of a cop out, maybe, but would be Messi, just because of the expectation that has been on his shoulders for a long period of time. So this is probably his last World Cup, isn't it? Being able to navigate that with a highly talented team, with an opportunity to do it, how you go about that and manage yourself through that would be would be really rewarding. And the other one from from England would probably be be Marcus Rashford. I think someone who's given a lot to our country, but also been through quite a lot in terms of form, in terms of the, you know, the context of football. So form at Manchester United, coming off the back of the Euros, he's made a late run into the England team. Probably has the opportunity to have a real impact. So he would be another one, because I think he's, he's a really interesting character who's, who's obviously brought a lot to the, to the country on and off the field. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time and your insight. And um, all the best with uh, whatever you get up to next. No problem. Thank you for having me. I thought that was interesting, Johnny, to hear such an unsolicited restatement of Gareth Southgate's qualities by Tom. We've talked about the culture of criticism. Do you think, as far as England is concerned, and I know you know, you'll partially be speaking as a Scotsman here, but are too many conditioned to negativity as far as the England team's concerned? You mean too many of in our business, Mike? In our business or the wider fan base? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it strikes you on social media during any game how, how there's a certain lobby that's that's determined to, to jump very quickly on a bad 20 minutes and Southgate and the handbrake comes up quite a lot. And even in the aftermath of, of the Wales game, there was, there was another lobby that instead of, I guess, praising him for his use of Rashford and Foden and for making a good tactical switch at half-time, there was another lot that wanted to see that as, oh, that's proof he's a bad manager because he got it wrong for the first half. It was only the second half when he, he put them in the right positions that things were were good. And I found that interview with Tom fascinating because not, not least because he worked with Belgium during the 2018 World Cup when they were a very happy camp and, and came very close to winning it. And we see what's happening with the Belgian squad now when they're in a very different position as a group of people. And I don't know who they've got helping them, but maybe they could they could do with Tom. And, and what he was saying about Gareth, I guess, echoes what we've been trying to talk about, which is that ability to create a culture, to create a, a unity of purpose that outlasts the noise around it and, and the negativity that you're you're talking about and interesting to hear him say that I guess in effect it's easier said than done that, that there's some quite subtle and difficult work goes on from people like Gareth to create these situations these conditions mm. I was also quite struck by Tom's references to the often overlooked fact that these players face the human challenges that we all face now Paul you're working with Kevin Sinfield in you know what is a, an absolutely inspirational cause has that affected you and you know with all your football experience as well bring that in if you could but it gets to the heart of what sport is is people sometimes conquering themselves you know there's a great deal of there are so many human qualities that we get through sport do you see that I do the, the older I've got and the more, more time I spend in this industry the more I've become interested in what I'd call the human element, you know, the things that you can't mm -hmm. see, the thing that doesn't show up on a team sheet or a formation or an expected goals analysis or any other scientific rationale for analysing sport. And to see it from, try to see it from the performer's perspective most of the time is, I, th I think, is, is very enlightening. When I was writing the book with Sir Alex Ferguson, 
he talked to me about players and I began to understand players and what they were living and going through in a way that I hadn't previously because, you know, there's a tendency to look at them as just, just performers on a stage out there. They're just, they're ciphers really, you know. And then when you start thinking about their lives and what they're going through and what might affect them in their performances, it becomes much more interesting. And the work with Kevin Simfield, particularly last week, taught me a lot about captaincy and leadership and bringing people together in a cause and, and developing, Tom used this phrase in the interview, common purpose. As John said, that's not, that's not easy to do. People think it's easy, but it's not. You know, to get 24 people to, to pull together, to help each other, to cover each other, to support each other and, and, and to actually achieve things and win things and, and come out of it feeling vindicated. It's an immensely difficult process, but it starts with the human element, not with the science, I think. Mm. Well, we've now got, Johnny, the, the element of jeopardy coming into play. Is that, in your view, the essence of tournament football? Yeah, it is. I mean, we've seen Argentina on this ride where every game's had jeopardy. And England haven't been in that position, but they're now entering that position. And, uh, you know, another fascinating element of that, that interview that you did with Tom was him talking about how you have you, you move or there's a danger moving from the opportunity mindset to the threat mindset because knockout football's all about threats. It's all about what happens if we slip up, concede a goal, go behind, lose on penalties. And it's about trying to maintain that 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 sort of sense of, of freedom and opportunity that you had in the group stages while being cognizant of, of 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 the 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 stakes i suppose another thing that struck me that tom said was you know you don't have to be perfect and you need to get that in your mind as a team you don't have to be perfect it's about progressing it's not about giving the perfect performance and if i think back to how gareth has has, has managed navigated previous tournaments the Columbia game, which was a great release for the the nation, I suppose, because they won on penalties. That was not a perfect performance at all. You know, England were in control of that game and then struggled a bit and got worn down by sort of Colombian aggression and, and, and conceded a silly late goal. And, and yet they mentally recovered to win on penalties. That's where England might find themselves against a Senegal team that shouldn't be underestimated. It's not going to be a breeze. It's not going to be a perfect day. And it's about resilience and reacting to, to situations as they come in the game. Mm. Yeah, Senegal, the first African team to face England in the World Cup since Cameroon in 1990, Paul. I'm interested in, in motivational areas or trigger points or even rallying uh, points. There are probably two as far as Senegal's concerned. The first being you know, they won the AFCON title in February. But secondly, that the loss of Sadio Mane, perversely, has that given them that common purpose that Johnny talked about? Well, it doesn't seem to have harmed them much. I mean, they beat Ecuador and Qatar and then lost 2-0 to the Netherlands. The fact that they are champions of Africa, I think, gives them a kind of standard-bearing quality. You know, they know, they know how good they are. They're not trying to find out whether they're a good side. They know they are. And it was interesting. I mean, 2018, no African country reached the knockout stages. That was the first time that had happened for 36 years. So they are standard bearers for African football as well. And, you know, they'll really fancy the idea of the, the World Cup win of a lifetime uh, in the second round because England are really sitting there as a target for them, aren't they? And they, they couldn't possibly have a, have a greater motivation than to knock out the Premier League's team, you know, the Premier League stars. They, they, they'll be a handful. They're, they're physical, they're experienced, they're good. They don't have Mane, as you said, but they have some serious players, including Moses Cachado from, from Brighton. Yeah, we'll go into the uh, private grief area of that in a second, Paul, if we could, because you know, <laughs> I suppose we can go into it now, if you like, because obviously if you look at that group, there are players playing for a move. Ismailia Saar, I'm, I'm quite in, intrigued by Ilman and Dai at Sheffield United, they're players who are almost quite literally playing for their future, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, a lot of, a lot of them have got really good futures already, of course. Uh, you know, do you remember those days decades ago when it was a, 
question of kind of spotting a, a, an African player with potential and they might end up at European club. It's not really like that anymore, is it? The scouting is industrialised. The, the intelligence network works so well. What we're really talking about, I suppose, Mike, is players going up the, up the grades from mid-ranking clubs to top clubs, you know, top six clubs. That's always the target, isn't it, for the, the, the wages and the opportunities that bring. But yeah, certainly this team is, is, is you know, bristling with, with players, upwardly mobile players, I'd say. Yeah. If we're looking at weaknesses, Johnny, would they come in midfield where, you know, they have to do without Idrissa Gay, who's suspended? You know, I'll put my hands up here. I'd even forgotten that Pepe Matassar even plays for Spurs or doesn't play, as the case may be. It looks like he might come in. Does that give England their opportunity? I think there is an opportunity in, in, in midfield. I mean, Sarr's a very young player, talented, but but not a lot of experience. I mean, another player that fascinates me is Palace Mendy, who uh, barely has played for Leicester over the last two or three years, but is actually a very resilient little character who's had terrible injuries and, and, and come back from there. And is a good player, but I don't think anyone is quite of the level of Ghana Gay when it comes to ball recoveries and, and, and defending in midfield. And that will be an issue for them against Jude Bellingham in particular, but also Harry Kane dropping deep and, and he's been at his best in this tournament in the kind of Sheringham role rather than the Shearer role. So there is an opportunity there for England, but you know, there there are players that you've mentioned as well, um, like Ismail Assar and and um Ilian Ndeng who who are going to be difficult to handle going forward. And I don't think anyone's got at England's defence yet, really. So it doesn't strike me that it's going to be a particularly easy game from an England point of view, but they should, they should be able to exploit strength if they if all goes well in in certain areas to win it. Just not not comfortably, in my opinion. Hmm. Let's look at some of the other last sixteen games. The Netherlands they've got the USA on Saturday. Paul, is this? Do you think Louis Van Gaal's last hurrah? And and should we be concentrating more on his influence as a coach of a really global stature yeah it's interesting somebody made the point to me last night that there aren't many coaches managers at this world cup who who were top level managers you know there's Hansi Flick club managers I should say Luis Enrique and Van Gaal is very much on that list you know uh, international coaches tend to be people not from the very top of the club game for all sorts of reasons we could spend ages discussing but Van Hal is one of the few people that that bestrides the the you know the two disciplines club and international football and he's been successful in both. I guess whether it's his last hurrah would depend on his health, wouldn't it? Above all, I, I hear complaining and from the Netherlands end about his style of play as there was as there was at Manchester United when he turned them into a slightly slow kind of clockwork team, didn't he? Uh, <laughs> it went <laughs> it went sideways and backwards relentlessly across the Old Trafford pitch and had people yawning quite a lot, which is which is not to disrespect him entirely because he, he's, he's got an amazing CV. But you would think ultimately that the Netherlands would want a, a younger coach who's probably more in tune with the way the world game is going at some point, but they'll be pretty happy to have him now, I'm sure of that. Hmm. What about the USA, Johnny? I know you've been around their camp. They strike me as an extremely likeable group. I thought the way hmm. Tyler Adams dealt with the... You know, politi- political dimension of that Iran game was absolutely superb. What about them as a working outfit, if you like? Are they good enough to beat the Netherlands? Yeah, well, well, well first of all, thanks to Paul there, because if I have to write about Van Gaal's Holland, then he's given me clockwork orange as, a, as, a, oh, as an intro line. This is um, how magic <laughs> happens. I'll send you That's the invoice, it. Johnny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll pay anything for an intro. We all would, wouldn't we? Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, with with the USA, you're, you're, you're right. I, I spent some time with Tyler Adams at a community event about a month before the World Cup. And what you see is a very principled and intelligent young man. And and, and that seems to be true of a lot of the other American players. They've got, they, they put a lot into education in American sport, as we know. And Tyler was telling me that he's, he's still doing a college degree that's being funded by New York Red Bulls because it's a condition of MLS clubs now that when they take young players, they pay for their entire college education for the rest of their lives, basically. So that Tyler's still cashing in on that. But the the, the USA players, I mean, Anthony Robinson, who we both know, Mike, mm-hmm. and, and you, I know you know his father, was an incredibly touching 
scenes with with the way he was comforting the Iran players at, at the end. And I think as a group, the the USA have 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 been really impressive from that mental perspective because it was a disappointment in their first game against Wales. They put themselves in a really tight spot actually, and were the stronger team against England really. Let's be honest. And then to come up, come through that emotional game against Iran the way they did was was enormously impressive. And they've been they've been outstanding in this tournament. They lack a brilliant striker, but my goodness, they're good in midfield. And the likes of Dest and Robinson are incredible athletes at the back. Mm. Yeah, France, yeah, the holders. They played Poland on Sunday, Paul, with qualification secure. Did they effectively? take the day off against Tunisia they lost 1-0 and it was ultimately irrelevant thankfully but you know how fair is it to to the other people in the group that you make nine changes and frankly don't turn up yeah that that did that did make me uncomfortable I must admit it was like one of those late stage Champions League games wasn't it where the where the you know the second team gets a run out and the team's already qualified it, I, I, it, it, it looked wrong to me I can understand why he did it he's only thinking about his own team but it, it didn't it didn't really help the competition in many ways, and um, you know they, they they struggled as a consequence. I mean, I, I've only seen four teams that I think can win this World Cup, which are Brazil, Spain, France, and England. I can't really see beyond any of those. I don't know whether whether you two guys can, but and France, defending champions, no 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 country's defended the title since what sixty two, I think. Is that right? It's a notoriously hard thing to win twice in a row. France have the ability, they have the manager, they have the players. But do they have the chemistry? So often with France, it tends to come back to chemistry, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think also that they will ultimately miss N'Golo Kante. Do you agree with that, Johnny? I'm not sure, actually. I mean, no one's a bigger Kante fan than, than, than me. And of course, the Kante of four years ago would, would, would be send this French team to another level. But the Kante of now is is, is diminished as an athlete. And I, I think Chouameni's had a really good tournament. I think he's such a fine player, and and they haven't even used Camavinga. I know Camavinga played yesterday in in the sort of dead rubber, but they haven't used him yet in 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 a kind of serious game. And he's got he's got talent to burn. So I don't necessarily see that as the the the, the weak spot. I, I think the weakness might lie in the fullback areas. And Rabio has never convinced me at all as a footballer. It's not a perfect French team. But I would agree with Paul that, that it's 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 the four he mentioned and maybe Argentina after seeing how the momentum's building with them. Very flawed team, but there's a bit of a, something special going on with them. The support they're receiving is amazing, isn't it, Paul? You know, I suppose we must call them Messi Incorporated now, mustn't we? They're faced with the, the ultimate underdog here, aren't they? Australia, their qualification for the last 16 is a... Is a a signature achievement, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I think that with the USA and Australia, you're really seeing. Oh, well, how can I say this without um, sounding patronising? The kind of the, the new the new world in football is you know is the new world on the rise. Uh, Australia, uh, there are an awful lot of big sports in Australia, so f- football is really up against it and trying to gain a foothold in Australia. I remember in covering the 1994 World Cup in the USA and people saying that there was no way on earth that football would ever replace the big three sports in America. It would just be a sort of little token fringe sport uh, in the United States. And I think that's changing. I think now you would say that football is becoming, you know, a seriously mainstream sport in the American culture. Will it become so in Australia? Again, stiff competition, but reaching the last 16 of this this competition would certainly help. Yeah, I can remember watching... 93, with 93,000 people at Pasadena, you know, there was a huge groundswell, you know, probably took a, took a while to build, didn't it? When you think about Argentina, you do think about Messi, Johnny. Can you give us an insight into the hype that is around him at this tournament, given that everything, every, every, even my wife said to me yesterday, who doesn't really understand football, God bless her, oh, this is, this is Messi's last World Cup, isn't it? Now, when that's the, that to me was the ultimate cut-through moment. Yeah, it, it 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 is one of the obsessions of the tournament, and it goes beyond the Argentina camp. There are a lot of as we as we've sort of all discussed about Qatar now. It's a it's a place that's essentially full of migrants, ninety percent of the population, and and these are a lot from 
South Asia, and uh, and and he, Messi seems to be have a huge following in that part of the world and among you know football fans internationally. So there's a lot of local support for him. It strikes me as well how the Argentina players keep talking about Messi. They keep talking about the burden they feel almost to do it for Messi. And I have no insight into Messi as a character, sadly. I've never had the chance to speak to him, and I would love to. So I don't quite, un I don't know his psychology. I can watch, I can see it from afar, but he does seem to have this incredible capacity to, to be at the centre of all this, handle it, and stay in his bubble. We've been talking about bubbles. There's a certain Messi bubble that you see him playing in in the pitch. And I felt, funnily enough, I, I felt he was brilliant in 2014. I felt he was very good in a ridiculously dysfunctional Argentina team in 2018. And he's been very, very good here. So the idea that Messi's never brought it to tournaments is, is nonsense. And I think he's doing all he can. I think he's blotting out this noise incredibly. It's more. It's probably whether the rest of the Argentines can handle the emotion of, of, of the situation rather than whether he can handle it. Mm. You know, there's no more emotional camp pool than a Brazilian camp at a World Cup, which is absolutely manic on a, on a quiet day. Half-fit Neymar, they've got their final group game against Cameroon on Friday. Is this Brazilian team one to enter legend? Uh, I, I, I can't really see what they're, they're lacking. I can't see a significant hole in the team, you know, a defensive vulnerability or a lack of goals or a lack of midfield power and control. They have, to me, they have the best balance of attributes of any team that we've seen so far. And it's, and it's a testament to that, really, that, you, you know, Neymar can drop out with an injury and the team carries on and looks just as good, pretty much. It may lack the, the, the elaboration that Neymar would bring to it, but it functions just as well without him because there are so many good attacking players in there. And I, I, I spotted yesterday that um, 11 of the Brazil squad play in the Premier League, which is a remarkable statistic when you think about it. I mean, sometimes... Sometimes they look like a Premier League team. You could get a whole 11 of Premier League players out on the pitch for them. And uh, that's, that, that's an extraordinary comment on the power of the Premier League. And, um, and thankfully, the Premier League isn't ruining these players because 20 years ago, it probably would have done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're out there, Johnny. What's the mood music around that Brazilian camp? Yeah, I've seen it at other tournaments. They, they have a sense of this being their tournament and, and their, their own destiny uh, uh, being here. But they do seem to be more of a unit than possibly before. In 2014, I remember Na the Neymar mania was just ludicrous. And 2018, there was that instability that we saw. There were lurches in performance. This seems to be a better group, a tighter group. And funnily enough, for me, the player that set the tone for them has been Thiago Silva. It's not been any of the. I mean, Casemiro has been great as well. But it's in a in a, in a World Cup where we've been talking about you know serenity and and control and 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 shutting out what's around. I mean, nobody does it better than that guy. At an age where we're pensioning off Ronaldo, and you know four years older than let's say a fading athlete like Gareth Bale. I don't know how Thiago does it. I think he'll go down as one of the greatest players of all time frankly and we should appreciate him but but it's control that's what I've seen from Brazil so far there's been a control about them in all in their both of their games that's ominous for the rest of the tournament yeah well we've been talking about winners but for me the worst performing team in this World Cup isn't Qatar or Denmark Belgium or even Wales it's FIFA Corporate greed and political ambition explains why next time, in 2026, we'll have a ludicrously loaded 48-team tournament. In that tawdry spirit, we now hear suggestions that penalty shootouts, offering a bonus point in the event of a draw in the group phase, should be introduced. Now, the qualification process from three match groups is far from perfect. But the last thing football needs is more crass Americanisation. I hope you agree. All that remains is to thank Tom Young for his observations and, of course, to reinforce my gratitude to Paul and Johnny for their insights. Enjoy sudden death football, everyone, before they work out a way to ruin it. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.